Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. My name is Luke. If we've not met yet, I'm one of the pastors here. In fact, I slipped out of a pastor's retreat to be here with you today. That's where they're all at. They are still at the retreat. Um, and I was struck last night just as we were laughing and crying and praying for each other how great a hands you're in. Um, those are some incredible men just with the combined competency and character. Um, and it is, it is fun. It's fun to get to lead and serve you guys with those guys. And as we grow as a church and we add new pastors to the team, we not only have a great group of people to work with, a lot of good potential candidates, but I mean just the group of men that they would get to walk with as they learn how to be pastors. I'm excited about that. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about, because typically I'm, I'm not the one opening the service, typically uh, Hillary will have somebody else up here, is right before I went on a sabbatical rest about four months ago, we were nominated to be on a list um, that is cranked out every year by Outreach Magazine, Exponential Conferences, and Lifeway Research. They do some key lists that probably nobody really looks at except for other pastors. It is the largest churches in America, the fastest growing churches in America, and the most reproducing churches in America. Um, we were nominated for the third, the most reproductive cultures in America. And so I had an interview on the phone with someone from Lifeway, filled out some paperwork that they asked me to fill out. Um, we were nominated by a couple local churches here in Knoxville, and we got it. So you could go there if you want. You could Google Exponential Top 100. Legacy Church will be on there, and that is exciting. Now, here's the thing. You're probably thinking, why would we be on that list? There's like, on a good day, there's 150 of us here, you know, on a good day, like when it's all rambunctious in here. This is the things I take into consideration. Speed of planting, um, heavy, which ours was very fast. We planted very fast um, from our own inception. Investment, um, we give 10% of everything that comes in right into church planting. Not just out the door, but out the door into church planting specifically. Um, they look at overall philosophy and culture. They look at our calm group structure. The fact that we had a residency was remarkable to them at one time. Um, the fact that we, uh, as, I mean, I represent Legacy Church at Acts 29, and we've probably done assessments for almost 30 church planters that are already out on the ground planting churches. When they take all of that into consideration and put it in a blender and pour it out, we made the top 100 list. And we're in there with some really good company. But it's funny, when you look at the list, it shows the size of the church off to the right. <laughs> so you'll see the Village Church, 10,000 people at the Village Church. You'll see the Summit, 15,000 people. And then right underneath it, you see Legacy Church, 150 people. <laughs> now, so this is why I'm telling you, not so that I get a pat on the back. I'm doing this to celebrate you. You guys did that. You poured your heart into this. You paid for it. You guys have started calm groups. You have sent calm groups. Um, you guys have built the very culture that they are celebrating on that list. It's just a list, right? And as we continue to plant churches, really the only list I even care about is the Lamb's Book of Life. I would like to see families, new salvations. I would like to see beautiful addition. I'm, I care about that list. I just think it's fun, and I think it's just it's good to just remind you of, of what we do and why we're here and, and how great of a job you've done. So listen, if you serve here, if you give into this thing, if you're a partner, if you are a vital piece of who we are as a people, thank you for building that. You put yourself on the list. You did that. You did that. That's exciting. 
So I just want to pray for you real quick and open this service up. But I also want to thank God. Thank God that in under nine years, we went from a living room with two families to two locations where we just keep growing, and that's not always promised, and it is a grace of God on our lives. And then just to ask God that he continually put us in postures and positions where we can build new pastors, build new planters, start new churches, send more calm groups. That's what I'm believing God for. So let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you as we open this service and as we crack your word to see you more clearly. Lord, that we're very thankful that you built a culture here. Luke didn't do this. The pastors didn't do this. You, through your people, you, out of grace and love and just being thoughtful, built this church to be an environment where we could plant and multiply. And, and Father, I have, I have dreams and hopes that as the, the church ages and as we grow, that we don't just plant one church, but we plant many churches. And then because we did a, a job that was hard, those churches are planting churches, that this whole metro area is draped and covered with community groups or whatever that church calls them. But there are little cultures here and there that are intent on serving the city, serving each other, loving you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, not, not because we're on that list, but because you built something that would end up on a list sometime. So, Father, we thank you. You're very sweet to us. You're very kind, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, if you brought your Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel. We're just, if you weren't here last week, we're just working through um, a few key weeks, two, three, four weeks, just to kind of go through some mega themes of some things that the Lord has showed me and worked through in me in my time of rest. And this is a big one. Listen, if you're a searcher today, if you're not sure about Jesus, this is going to be a great week for you. I mean, it was a passage like this that led me to Jesus um, and helped me see much more clearly. Uh, I think if for anyone in the room, this is going to help you love your Bible a little bit more too. It's going to open your eyes as you read it. So 2 Samuel is a really cool place in the story of Israel. This is towards the end of David's rule. He's a little bit of an older man now, okay? And so we're going to be in chapter 15, verse 13 through 14. Listen, if you didn't bring your Bible, it will be up on the screen, and I'm going to read it as well. And we're going to skip around a little bit, um, only because this is a part of the Bible, this historical narrative, where there's always stories within stories. There's a lot of details. There's a lot of names. And I'm trying to put the narrative together to where we can just flow right through it. So 2 Samuel 15, 13 through 14, this is the word of the Lord for us today. And the messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Okay, here's the problem with this scene. Absalom is his son. If you don't know, Absalom is his son. And he's not alone, but a lot of David's inner circle, his closest advisors, have been flipped. And now they stand with Absalom instead of David. What we're reading about very quickly in these couple verses is betrayal, deep betrayal, which some of you have felt. Let's just be honest. I mean, no one enters a relationship hoping that they're going to be betrayed. 
right? Nope, nobody does. And when David held Absalom in his arms when he was a young king and Absalom was just a baby and he probably dreamed over this baby and did what we do as parents. We pray over the crib when they're asleep. We think of what they might be like when they grow up. Nobody. David could have never imagined in his wildest imagination that something like this could ever happen. See, we miss this in the Bible sometimes. I mean, it's pregnant with emotion, isn't it? If you have eyes to see it, it has a lot of emotion. I think, I think for folks like us, it's important to remember that David is not made of different material, but we are him. He is us. We're very similar. And some of you have suffered betrayal before. As you hear me talk, you're probably already seeing faces and names roll through your mind. And, and it doesn't always look this aggressive with swords and chasing out of the city and stuff. Sometimes it's a bit more covert, right? I mean, what about a relationship that you've been pouring into, caring about, nurturing, you've heavily invested into? Maybe, it, maybe it's more covert where they just kind of dislocate from you. They disengage. It's a betrayal. They stopped caring. They stopped investing. They stopped paying attention to you. And bitterness grows. Pain comes, right? And betrayal is interesting because it comes with some shrapnel, right? It gives opportunity to what we call shame. And I know a few weeks ago, Chris, from what I understood, he came up and he spoke about shame a little bit. Chip Dodd, in his book, The Voice of the Heart, he says that, ooh, he says that betrayal is the most shameful thing we can feel. He says because we have to admit that we've been hurt. We admit that somebody has gotten to us. And that makes us feel embarrassed. It makes us feel kind of weak. So all of this to say that David is suffering deeply as he runs for his life. Now, are you somebody in the room that might resonate with that? Betrayed. Dislocated from. Maybe you live with somebody who feels like this. Work with somebody who feels like this. Listen, if you've never been hurt like this before, then may God have mercy on your soul. It is a hard suffering to be betrayed on this level and to feel the shame. It is hard. But David's day, it does get a little bit worse than this. So what I want you to do is skip down to verse 23, chapter 15, verse 23. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Go up to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Okay. Here's the problem with this scene. David's suffering is now borrowed by his companions. Right? Because, I mean, let's, let's just think for a moment. These are people that chose David over Absalom, so they had to grab their stuff, everything that they could carry when they walked out the door, all their family with them, right? So now their lives are in jeopardy. Now everything they own is being pillaged and gone through. Now there's strategies against their life. So David's suffering is now corporate suffering. And I'll tell you, when I hurt real bad, it affects my wife, right? I see the, the, the pain in her, her eyes, and because she hurts, it, it amplifies my pain. It's like a liability attached to a pain. I, because she hurts, I hurt even more. Right? We don't want our issues to affect other people. We don't want our loved ones to be affected by what affects us. 
But David's day gets a little bit worse. So look at chapter 16. Just scroll down a little bit. Verse 1. When David passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisin, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruits for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Here's the problem with this. Because it looks benign enough, but he's a liar. He's lying. I mean, he is using David's pain as an opportunity to increase his own station in life. He sees David hurting. He sees him mourning. He sees him running for his life. He sees him betrayed. He sees him shamed. He says, now's a good time. Now's a good time to get ahead. Right? It gets worse for him, though. Look at the next verse. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What do I have to do with you, sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord has told him, Curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? Okay, here's the problem with this scene, right? Shimei is carrying a loud, false narrative. Now it's public. It's not just corporate. Now it's public. The shame, this mockery. I mean, at least with Ziba, he came with raisins and donkeys and bread and stuff like that. And it was underhanded for sure, right? Painful for sure. This guy's throwing rocks. It's open. It's wicked. What I want you to see is David, in the course of one day, has his life threatened by someone who is incredibly close to him, even his own son. And his, his, his suffering is not just individual, it's corporate. And he's running, and he's embarrassed, and he's shamed, and he's betrayed, and he's mocked, and he's lied to. It is a bad period, day period. This is a horrible day. I'm glad the Bible shows the grit like this. I appreciate it. And I appreciate that the Bible itself does not pretend that you and I are cut from a different cloth. But we can share this moment. I'll tell you, I've also come to appreciate over time how the suffering in this passage is in relational form. It's relational pain. This is people pain. This is going to be helpful for us, by the way. Because we know that suffering comes in different flavors and shapes. 
We did a series a year or two ago where we spent, it felt like forever, looking at the different kinds of suffering and the different responses to suffering. And I think it was valuable for a lot of people. And we learned that sometimes we suffer just because of broken creation, right? Hurricanes, mudslides. It could be something biological. Sometimes just creation is broken. But a lot of times the pain we feel and the suffering we go through is because people are broken. People can just be nasty. And sometimes they can just make a mistake, and it hurts. It hurts. There is no way you are going to make it through this lifetime without walking in David's shoes. It's not going to happen for you, right? That's why passages like this can be very valuable. And when we find ourselves walking across a brook and climbing up a hill with a lot of people pain all over us, one of the things that we have, we've been just groomed to do is find a defense mechanism. We, we, we build them over time. One of them is, is that we try to convince ourselves that we just don't hurt, right? That's a real common one. What doesn't kill you makes you, right, stronger. That came, by the way, that came out of an autobiography back before 1900. Back in the late 1800s, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote his autobiography, and that's where that line was pulled out of, right? Kelly Clarkson, Kanye West, they do what they do. They inhale this psychology. They build a song. Everybody listens to it. They dance in their car. It's all about becoming stronger, more resilient, not for really any purpose, but just to be stronger and resilient. It's just strength for strength's sake. It almost doesn't even make sense, right? That doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. But also what it communicates to us is so strong that no one will ever get you again. You won't be got again. You won't have to feel shame or weak ever again. But if you let people get you, then you're weak. And there's nothing beautiful about weakness, is there? But Paul says that for the Christian, strength is actually found in weakness. That's what he says. In fact, I think he knows relational suffering, people pain, as well as anyone does. Suffering, let me tell you, suffering and coming out of it alive, it might not make you look stronger in the world's eyes. It won't. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, meaning the Lord speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says now, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses. Listen to this. He's content with these things. He's satisfied with these things. He's cool with these things. Being weak, being insulted by others. He's content with hardship, satisfied with persecutions when people come against him. He's content with calamities. He says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? Paul says he finds strength. Not strength over people, not even strength in their eyes. I mean, Paul was always just kind of seen as pathetic by his adversaries. But he says his strength is found in the fact that he has more Jesus. More Jesus, especially on bad days, like what David's going through now. But let's face it, sometimes we don't get content. We definitely don't get stronger. Sometimes we get numb, right? We find distractions. We medicate because the people pain is too much. The relational suffering is too much. Sometimes what we'll do actually is we'll take that relational pain, the people pain, and we'll make it a new identity for us. 
We love it. We wear it. We're the perpetual sufferer. So this passage leads us well. Because when we mishandle the suffering with what people bring to us, with no Jesus in mind, we're not even looking at where Jesus is. We're not looking at who he is. We're not looking if he's someone that we meet with, we commune with, we share that moment with. When we live and we mishandle those sufferings in that way, then what we preach with our lives is not Christianity anymore. It's not. And we also forsake a deeper relationship. And we're going to speak on that in a moment. But some of you were sad today, suffering today. And people did that to you, didn't they? They hurt you. They got you. It stings, doesn't it? The shame, the shrapnel, the time. You can't even bring up their names without sinning out loud, right? Or without crying. Even now, you'd wish that we were talking about something else. Maybe it was your mom. Maybe it was your dad, your kids, your spouse, somebody, a coach, somebody that was valuable to you. Consider this passage a moment where you're sharing with David. And if David were to be in a time machine and come back and sit with you through this service, maybe go have lunch with you after this service, maybe spend a week with you, you know, you guys would eventually be able to kind of bond over what happens. Because the betrayal you feel, he felt, right? The mockery that he experienced, you've likely felt. Across the centuries, the cultures, the language barrier, there is something that you can share with David in this moment. You're crossing a brook, Kidron. You're heading for the hills. And if you haven't, you will soon. That's just the world we live in. But let me encourage you. God can be found in those places, first of all. Before I go any further, God can be found in that place. And when he finds this kind of a broken heart, he has very careful hands. He's very sweet. He's present. I know it can feel godless. <laughs> it can. But Jesus understands a broken relationship. Jesus understands people pain. But this place of relational suffering is a place where you can bond and share a moment with Christ uniquely. I'll just say uniquely. That you would never have the same kind of relationship with Jesus without the suffering. I mean, I, I assume, it's a big assumption, I assume most of you are here because you want to love Jesus more. You want to know him more. You want him to, you want to feel his love for you more. You got to know you can't have that without sharing suffering with him. It's just not possible. It's not possible. Let me explain what I mean. I love my wife. In fact, we're more in love now than we were on our wedding day. And a lot of that is because she held tight to me when I was doing a very bad impression of myself, when I was in a bad place and vice versa. Right? We, in fact, fulfilled our vows by doing that. We cared for each other through very thick and very thin, and we love each other more now than ever because we've bonded through these shared sufferings. When people share their sufferings with each other, they bond strong. Right? That's why you'll find veterans sticking close to each other, especially when they're still in contact with the ones that they were uh, fighting next to. This is why you'll find people that um, get married who went through Narcotics Anonymous together or Alcoholics Anonymous together. A lot of times they just, they marry each other. They understand each other. They have shared that bond, right? But imagine if I had a deep suffering and I just refused to share it with my bride. I wanted to go solo, keep it secret, 
Keep it just with me. Imagine if she did the same thing. I mean, we would still love each other, but our growth would be stunted. It wouldn't be the same relationship. You guys know this. This is why your best friends are your best friends, right? That's why good, it's, it's, it's why good friendships are really hard to build. It demands suffering. A series of many deaths shared together over a span of time. It's emotionally expensive, which is why they're valuable. It's why they're hard to build. It's why you've had seasons of life where you felt like you had really close friends that could finish your sentence. You intuited each other. I mean, you, you shared everything together. And then maybe you move, maybe they move, something happens, and all of a sudden you find yourself friendless, and you feel the pain of the subtraction of that relationship because, man, you paid for that thing. You paid for it. They demand struggle. That's why some of you can be in a room full of people and feel very alone. Surrounded, for sure, but solo. And maybe that means that you just need more time with them. Certainly, friendships are built on that. Maybe, though, hear me, maybe you need to suffer with them, struggle with them, share what they're going through, and share with them what you are going through. Right? It demands struggle. You want a good friendship? It demands struggle. I'm just telling you, it does. Paul does something real helpful for us in Philippians 3, verse 7. He's going to show us the shape. If, I mean, I'm using that word very vaguely, the shape of suffering and the shape of resurrection. And so I'm going to turn there. It'll be up on the screen, like I said, if you don't want to turn to it or if you don't have a Bible with you. But we're going to be in the third chapter, verse 7. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, but whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here is the big sentence for us this morning that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is talking about two moments that we share. One is suffering, the other is resurrection. Right? And he said, I'll do it at all costs, at all costs. That's the shape of the Christian life. The old self goes away. The new self rises as a new creation. That happens when you become a Christian, and it happens every day, doesn't it? <laughs> Not that you become a Christian every day, but we move from death to life all the time. I'm going to explain what I mean by that if you don't know. But as we share our sufferings with Jesus, if we fellowship with him in our sufferings, and we trust him in the midst of pain, it is in that part, that moment, that space, that we find new life. It doesn't mean your problem's going away either. It doesn't mean your problem's going away or your pain's going away, but it does mean that you will have new life. The life that pretending that you don't won't give you. The life that uh, taking that on as your new identity is not going to give you. The life that medicating yourself with whatever distraction you can conceive of will not give you. Christ will build a new life in you. A new life. You know, the shape of the Christian life, I'll give you a little rubric that's been helpful for me the last three months. And by the way, I did not build this or conceive of it. 
Um, this came out of a book. You should get the book if you're a reader. Um, Paul Miller is the same gentleman that wrote A Praying Life, just finished a book that I think will probably become his opus, his most important book. And it's called The J-Curve. And he just describes the shape of suffering. And when he gave me these categories with which to view suffering, it was helpful for me. Not just for me, but for how I work with others. One is he describes there are sufferings that we invite into our life, right? It might be because you did something stupid, by the way, right? <laughs> you asked for it. You stick a, folk, a fork in a toaster or, or lick a light socket or something like that, that's on you. You get what you get, right? But there are also times where we invite suffering because we did something courageous. We took something on. We stepped out of our own world and stooped into somebody else's world so that we could serve them, knowing ahead of time it's probably going to be an inconvenience. We invited it. It's suffering that we invite. If you're incarnating in the life of somebody else in need, there will always be suffering. Hear me, you cannot be a missionary overseas, in your neighborhood, at work, in your family. You cannot be a missionary without relational suffering, without betrayal, mockery. You can't do it. You can't. And this is what it looks like, suffering that we invite, adopting an international student. Foster care. Planting a, a community group, planting a church, getting married, you invited it. Having kids, right? These are things you ask for. You don't have to repent for it. There's no, there's no, this suffering doesn't require repentance. But then there's a second kind of suffering where we suffer because something come along with that we did not invite. Something else happened because of what we did invite, right? Maybe from broken creation, but a lot of times it comes from broken people. Did not ask for it. But it looks like that international student you adopted, it looks like now, now they're needy and clingy and they're blowing up your phone all the time, right? Or maybe that foster care situation took a hard left turn because you didn't have all the details, right? Or whenever we plant a church or a comm group and we have to say goodbye to people that we kind of got used to seeing a lot. We didn't ask for that kind of pain. Well, hey, Married people? I mean, there's a reason that when the honeymoon is over is an actual phrase. There's a reason we use that, because we have pain into our marriage that we, didn't, we weren't expecting. We didn't ask for it. Or how about raising kids? You invited it, but you didn't know everything that was going to happen, right? Didn't know. This is suffering you did not ask for, and this is where we panic, too. This is where we panic. But then there is a third suffering, and this is suffering that is at the side of what we turn into. We kind of see our soul and the state of our soul, and we just don't like what we see. We don't like what it looks like, right? We're exposed. I wonder what that trip across the Brook Kidron, as David made it, I wonder what that did to his soul. I'm, for the most part, we're told what he said. We are not told what came across his face. I would have loved to have looked at his journal a little bit just to see. I'll bet he's repenting for how he looks, how he feels, the hatred that he has, the unforgiveness that he's cooking. I'll bet he's repenting because unlike the other two sufferings, this one does require repentance because we turned into something very ungodly. 
Now, what we'll do is we'll try to escape this repentance. We'll try to escape it. And it usually sounds like this, right? I wouldn't be enraged if you didn't act like that, right? I wouldn't be stressed out all the time if you weren't like this. It it always has that formula. I wouldn't if you didn't. I wouldn't if you didn't. It's our way of escaping that repentance. So listen, if you're relationally suffering right now and you can't even make it through a sermon like this without a name or two or ten popping up, if that's you, you need to know there's nothing defective in you. This is just Christianity. It's the shape of a Christian life. There's nothing wrong with you. And I'll tell you, any pastor or church or book that tells you that there is no function to relational suffering, that there's no function to it, they are wrong, 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 wrong. They have missed, they don't understand the gospel-shaped life. And how it's pregnant with relational suffering. It's full of it. You see, it's in all of us to escape this kind of suffering. We're allergic to it. I am, right? Sometimes we act like it doesn't hurt. Sometimes we just medicate ourselves, though. It could be trying to work too much. It could be abusing alcohol. It could be smoking marijuana. It could be whatever hobby you could throw both feet into. I mean, it's really boring to go through the long list of things that we can medicate ourselves with. I mean, we could go all day. It's just a long list, right? By the way, we will be tackling marijuana soon as a church, both how it's used medicinally and recreationally. As a leadership team, let me just say we have thoughts on it, right? I don't think it's something that churches can be lazy on or silent on. The national discussion is obviously moving from we shouldn't get high to Should we? Should we use it to escape pain because it's maybe healthier than prescription meds or maybe it's better for me? That's where the conversation's at right now. And as I'm watching the church grow, I feel like it's talking about things that the world is not really talking about. It's answering questions no one's asking. So we're interested in the topic, and the days are certainly over where the church has to be mute on it because just for fun, if you wanted to smoke just for fun, that's legal in 11 states now. Come into a neighborhood near you very soon. Pretty soon your neighbors will either take THC through some vehicle or they will approve of it. And I think we're just going to have to do a better job than, hey, you're not supposed to be drunk on anything but the Holy Spirit. We'll have to do better than that. They won't even know what that means. And it doesn't even touch on why they're doing it. Are they hurting? Are they trying to escape something? What does Jesus look like in the midst of their pain? How did they get that view of Jesus too, by the way? Have they heard the gospel? What does that gospel sound like? Is it even the gospel? Have you told them the gospel, right? I think a lot of people are going to say that it's medicinal, not recreational because of their anxiety. Basically, their suffering and sometimes relational suffering, people pain, it's too loud. It's too loud and they need it to go away. So for a lot of people, this suffering is not something that they're willing to share with Jesus. It's something that they need to find an escape hatch from and get away from it, right? All of this to say we'll have to paint a much bigger picture of creation and fall and redemption and their story within the big story. We'll have to be helpful on this as a church for you. That is a goal of ours is to develop a much more robust conversation, not just to questions, but really to the right questions, the questions that the city is asking, the questions that your friends are asking. But if I get back, I got that's a totally different sermon. If I get back and we've, we've looked at just a couple defense mechanisms. One is pretending that you're not really weak, you're just getting stronger because it doesn't kill you and you're not even hurting. 
Another one is that you've medicated yourself, you've distracted yourself because the pain is too much. A third one is that we kind of build an image out of it. We've become the martyr. We all know the person whose story is an absolute nightmare, yet they wear it because they wouldn't know what to do without it. They have to be that person. They are not satisfied, nor are they content with the identity that God has given them through the good news of the gospel, that they are a son, a daughter, a co-heir. They are family. They are royalty. They are one. They are new. They are justified. They are sanctified. That's not good enough. They have to have something. And what those people did, what that church did, what that company did, what my family did, that's good enough. That's good. And listen, if you struggle with that in here, I know why that narrative is easy for you because no one expects you to grow. It's just too hard for a person like you. You're not expected to grow. No one confronts you. You're not even expected to build new relationships. You're not expected to. But this narrative, it's just, it's vacant of all hope or design. There's no testimony, no signature of the gospel or anything that Christ is doing. It's a Jesus-less position. It refutes the Holy Spirit. It refutes hope at every single turn. You know, there's this story, I don't know <clears throat> where I picked it up, but I know I've read it twice. It was a public scene, so I, I'm sure it's been spoken of or written of multiple times. And it regards Johnny Tata, which I've brought up from the stage before. And listen, if you don't know who Johnny Tata is, um, she's a woman who, in her vibrant teens, she had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. Um, now, where you expect her to be bitter with God for being trapped in a chair, She's just a saint. I mean, really, if, the, if Protestants, if we had saints like the Catholics did, she'd be on the list. She would be a saint. She paints by holding a paintbrush in her mouth. She sings brilliantly, beautifully. She's written more books than anyone I know. She's, she is a gift to the, to the church. We don't really deserve her, right? Story goes, she's at a book signing, signing books with her mouth and a pen, right? Big line of people, can't wait to meet Johnny. And one woman gets up there and has a book, and as Johnny is signing it with her mouth, this person says, you poor thing. You poor thing. Just feeling hurt for her. Without, without judging this woman, Johnny drops the pen with the biggest, most beautiful smile on her face and sings. It seems like an inappropriate reaction at the moment. But she sings and she fills the Barnes and Noble or wherever with this beautiful song. And when asked later, it's because she doesn't want anyone feeling sorry for her because she's got nothing. She's got nothing that she regrets or is sad about because that chair is not a prison for her. It's not a prison. She has shared that suffering with Christ and she has shared a resurrection. And no, God didn't take the pain away. But there's something new that happened inside of her. And I bet she has to do that every day. How do we get to a place like that? How do we get to a place like that? I think we have to trust that our suffering is shared with Jesus. Forget David being in a time machine. Jesus sitting next to you. And you saying, Jesus, I was betrayed by my mom or my dad or my coach or my husband. or my I was betrayed. For him to say, I know. And I know how that feels. I'm really sorry. I'm sad for the pain. He shares that. He was, he was our great sufferer. Those aren't my words. I think we have to trust that our suffering is shared by the one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him 
and no beauty that we should desire him, says Isaiah. He is our great man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. You are not alone in your bad day, right? You see, Christ does something very beautiful in your Bible when it comes to this moment. Look in John 18. John 18, this is going to be verse 1. If you can get there quickly. If you can't get there quickly, like I said, it'll be on the screen. And it says this, speaking of the end of Christ's life here, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the what? Brook Kidron. Isn't that interesting? Where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, why would they do something like that? Isaiah tells us, because he was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Right? See, part of the gospel story in David's story is the fact that Jesus' flight away from the city is an echo and a perfected image of David's. Those are linked in your Bible, David and the son of David. Okay? Both men are anointed kings. Both are rejected by their people. Both cross the same brook. Both are heading for the Mount of Olives. Both have people with them sharing the burden David is weeping. Jesus is sorrowful unto death. Both kings are betrayed by somebody close, even family. David is assaulted by Shimei. Jesus is assaulted by a bunch of priests and soldiers. If you know the story that we just read, Abishai wants to kill Shimei. David says no. Peter wants to kill Malchus. And Jesus says no. Betrayed by those closest, mocked by opportunists, Jesus, even more than David, understands what relational people suffering feels like, right? By the way, that's called typology in your Bible, and it's cool. It's cool to see that. You see, you see the texture and, and the accuracy of the Word of God, but you know it's meant to do more in your heart than say, huh, well, that's pretty cool which it should do. It's supposed to do more than that. So it's supposed to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus, our great sufferer, has built a shape for those people who love him. This is the path of his family. Relational suffering is a part. It's a part of being connected to Christ. Hear me. If that is you today, he is here with you now, sharing what you're struggling with with you. He's with you. Your man of sorrows, he's holding you up. He removes that sting of death. He himself mocked mockery. He puts death to death. He did this. He did it for you and me. That's why he was carried off. That's why he tackles a cross. I think it's in this place of sharing a life with Jesus that there's also a shared resurrection as well. I'd like to talk a little bit about that more next week. We don't have time to do that today. But we do share something with him as well that comes out of the tomb, not just goes into it. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection at all costs. You see, your pain isn't the end of the story. 
what Jesus will do is he will take your pain, your relational pain, the betrayal and all the shrapnel that comes with it. He will take that and he turns it into something otherworldly. Totally otherworldly. Right? So before we finish here, just to drill this down into maybe something that you can tangibly use if we were to make this applicable. Whenever you're with somebody in your community group, your family, your neighbors, and they are suffering. And it's people suffering. Somebody did that to them, right? Ask them. Ask yourself, what kind of suffering are they enduring? Did they ask for that? Did they invite that? Did they not invite it? Did they just see something ugly in themselves? What kind of pain exactly are they going through? And then what is their temptation with all that pain? Are they the person that distracts themselves, medicates? Are they the person that is proud of that pain and they make it another badge on them? Or what, what, what is it? Are they pretending that it didn't even hurt? You know that's a lie. You know that's not true. What are they doing? Can they see Jesus in the midst of that suffering? And what does he look like? Is Jesus just somebody that sees your pain but doesn't really understand it? Is Christ somebody that knows that you're suffering but doesn't share it with you? He's just distant? These are questions that you want to ask them. This is how you want to lead that hurting person. It's a moment. It's a moment. And then there's room for us to repent for in this message today. What self-defense mechanism do you turn to? What is it that you do do you medicate, distract yourself, make an identity out of it, ignore it, or try to ignore it? How has it caused you to avoid relationships going forward, right? Unforgiveness in your heart. How do you get lost in the pain? These are questions you want to ask yourself as you repent before the Lord, because there is room to repent, right? And there's a beautiful place to share even our deepest sufferings with Jesus. So go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. And as the team comes back up and the music starts to roll on, just so you know, if you've not been here before, maybe you've only been here a couple times, we have elements in the back, juice and bread. And what that is, is that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's actually a visual picture of what we just described, right? And then when you take that communion, whether you take it with your community group or your family or you take it by yourself, I want you to think about not just what he has done for us, but what kind of a response that draws from you, okay? Listen, there is a long pause between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and it can feel like a living hell. But to sing, to sing in the midst of that pain, to trust the Lord, to share that pain with him, to share that pain with him, that you may know the power of his resurrection at all costs. That's the stuff that even angels long to look at, right? Paul sings in prison. Johnny sings from a chair that she's going to be in for the rest of her life. We have the opportunity, even today, to sing, to sing from the midst of our people pain. Amen? Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for how sweet you are to us as a people. Even the pains that we feel, even that thing that we're carrying around in us that was done to us and the shame that came with it, the mockery, the tribulation, the persecution, the insults, maybe it's just somebody just dropped us. They left us. They disengaged from us totally. They've ignored us. 
Father, we have an opportunity to share that with you. You understand all of that. You are our great sufferer. And then also, Lord, that we could look with hope towards a deeper resurrection because you are our great hero. And you didn't just descend into a grave and say, I'm waiting for you here. I know how it feels. But you launch us as we explode from that tomb because you left it empty and we are able to walk around with the resurrection power in us, a resurrection life in us. Help us sing, though, Father, in our various prisons, in our various pains. Help us trust you. Lord, help us trust that even in the midst of something as difficult and as horrible as that, you're creating something new in us, that you understand, that you are close, and you're building something new in us. And Father, I know that there are people here that are still far from you, and yet they're searching, maybe skeptical, maybe less skeptical, and they just have questions, but they're searching. Father, that you would reach and mold their heart. Father, that you would break their heart just so that they could see the blood that is on their hands and they can see the blood that is on the cross. That they could see the, the, the depth of their own sin, but then at the same time they see the depth of your very grace. That today would be a day, Lord, that you would call people unto yourself. Lord, we love you. We're so very, very thankful. And as we worship you, we worship you not only as our great sufferer, but also as the one that crossed the brook for us, that climbed the hill for us, that did something beautiful that we would be called family. Father, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.
thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, your love. You are love. We thank you for your word. You are the word. You're alive. And Lord, you say that your word is piercing. Your word pierces our hearts, Lord. And I just pray that today that what we have heard would change us. I just want to read something really quick. Um, it's in Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, your word, you, you pierce, you pierce our hearts. You know, you see right through it. You see us. God, I just pray that we wouldn't leave here unchanged, that our hearts would be receptive to your word, your living word, that God, you would move in our hearts, crush us, Lord. Would you crush us? Would you, would you crush us so that we would be made new? You would work in us, mighty God. Mighty God, you are faithful. We know this, we've seen you. We see the evidence of you. We know who you are. You're here, you're alive, you're in us. And for those of us who are like fumbling and figuring it out, that's okay. That's, that's all right. That's okay to look like that. It's all right to look messy. It's okay to be like that. You can take that, God. You look at us though, as if we weren't. You look at us like, that's my child. It's my daughter, it's my son. So God, we see that and we desire that more. Would you help our hearts to desire that? Help us, teach us, God, teach us what that looks like to desire to run after you. And like a child running into your arms, running into our arms, that we just have a child's heart, that we would hear your word, it would pierce our heart. We would look upon you with just favored eyes, just love in our hearts. And then we go change down to the word. We pray, Lord, that this is your will in our lives. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. Hey, it's so good for us to be together. My name is Hillary Little, and I see some new faces out there, and so I would love to welcome you to Legacy Church. Um, we meet here at West High School every Sunday, and if you want to get to know a little bit more about us, you can grab a gift bag and some um, little treats in that bag on your way out. Um, you can also get to know us by being a part of a calm group. Calm groups are a community group that meet throughout the city on various days of the week. And if you're interested in those, um, talk to the person at the community or the guest welcome table or ask a person here and um, come try out a calm. That's a great way to get to know Legacy Church and to get up to be a part of the family of Legacy Church. So I have a couple announcements. First is a big thank you from West High School. They emailed Rebecca this week and just wanted everybody to know that they're very thankful for the work that y'all put out in um, mulching and cutting down the bushes, or not cutting down the bushes, but, you know, making them look nicer. So West High School is very thankful for that, and I think that we had a good time doing it. So hopefully we'll have more opportunities to do things like that in the future. Um, but I wanted you to know that West is thankful for your hard work. Um, this next announcement, it's a little save the date. 
The annual Chili Cook-Off Legacy Birthday Bash is going to be October 6th. And so, if you're competitive, it's about the time of the year that you need to start trying some chili recipes. I don't know if you remember, but mine got third place last year, so it's about the time where we're going to start having chili a few times a week, and I'm going to make it perfect so that this time I can take home the golden ladle. Um, but y'all work on those chili things. Again, that's going to be October 6th. Um, ladies, the Bible study is happening now, so we're one weekend Thursdays on at 10.30 at Sarah Beth Erickson's house. Um, come join that. Even if you didn't come the first week, you are welcome to come. And then the last announcement is that the Financial Peace University starts this week. So that's going to be at 4 o'clock. Is that right? I don't have it written down this time. 4 o'clock at the Foster's home. And so it is a great opportunity. If you are at all struggling in your finances, struggling to look like or to see what it looks like to glorify God with your finances. If you are in debt or needing help making budgets, um, this is going to be a really good opportunity for that. And so the fosters are right there. Ask them for more information, but this is the week. So if you've been on the fence about it, this is your opportunity to jump in and uh, be a part of that. So talk with them for more on that. I'm going to pray for us, and we will head out. Jesus, we are so thankful that you give us the opportunity to share in your sufferings, that we do not suffer alone, um, but God, you um, know what it is like to have relational suffering. Jesus, you've been there and you did it perfectly. And Jesus, you also 